0: The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 162 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in to the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books, and you know, let me begin this week by saying just how very much I enjoy doing this show. I, I really do. I truly. It truly is something I have. Uh, I didn't expect to be doing this long, and I certainly did not expect it to become what it is now, and. I just, I love doing this. I love speaking with authors every week and then getting to bring that conversation to you. And it's, uh, it's really something that has brought a lot of joy to my soul. And, uh, yeah. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. And you know, it's wonderful to, whenever I get a chance to hear from you, the listener and, uh, kind of like a couple of reviews I recently became aware of on iTunes uh, Greg925 says <laughs> he loves the format and thinks this is the perfect balance of getting to know the author and the behind the scenes of the book. Well, thank you, Greg. I, I think so, too. And that's uh, very kind of you to say. I, I appreciate that. And, and Greg, make sure you reach out to me. Let me know what was uh, one of your favorite ones. Uh, Big bad 330 says he enjoys hearing what the author's... And the host, Jason, is up to each week. (laughs) Well, thank you, Big Bad. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I really enjoy hearing what the authors are up to each week myself. I really appreciate that uh, both you, Big Bad 330, and Greg925, that you both have taken the time to leave a review over on iTunes. Hey, it's it's something that anybody can do uh, on whatever podcast platform you want that you're listening to the show on. The show is on all podcast platforms, including most recently Pandora, uh, picked us up here. Just it's just been here in the last couple of weeks, though I got the official word back. But yeah, you can now listen to us on Pandora. So, but uh, but whatever you're listening, make sure you uh, take a moment, go in, give us a rating and a review. And uh, you know the ratings are nice, I appreciate that. But the reviews tell me something that you like, and then I'll be happy to give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Um, I also want to give a special welcome and shout out to new listener Russell who I just randomly ran into a couple days ago. Russell and his wife are looking to start a bookstore and uh, he's and Russell is also a beginning author and uh, that's awesome. Uh, Russell and I just kind of just kind of forgot the time and uh, <laughs> chatted for a while about writing and, and uh, we talked a little bit about the show and that was a lot of fun so best of luck to you russell Man, I, I hope you can both get that uh, store up and running and uh, whenever your books are ready make sure you reach out to me let me know you uh, as i told you in person you have an open invitation to join the show but you know you don't have to run into me randomly in the street uh, or at my workplace <laughs> to be able to find out and follow the show you can follow sample chapter podcast on uh, most social media platforms facebook twitter instagram it's just the sample chapter podcast very easy to find you can reach out to me through email at sample at and i know there are a lot of emails right now that have come in especially uh, uh, specifically around the holidays when i was very busy and then afterwards when i got sick so i'm doing some catch up on some of those if you have not heard back from me yet you will be i've been i'm keeping track of everybody and uh, going through and responding in turn so make sure that uh, you do go ahead and email me and if you haven't heard from me in a while go ahead and send me another email and that'll kind of bring you back to the forefront of my (laughs) email list (laughs) Uh, but you can also leave me a voicemail by calling 660-851-1146 if it's a uh, voicemail i really enjoy then i'll go ahead and play that so i decided not to play that that one that i got that i told you about last week the service call that was uh called me up you know they're trying to sell something but oh well that's fine i don't need to i don't need to play that so as you can tell from the sound in my voice uh i am still just just a little nasally uh my voice is still just a little rough uh, plus It's very early in the morning, I'm still working on my first cup of coffee, and uh, a couple weeks ago I was told if I'm going to get up this early in the morning, I need to speak quietly, because I woke some people up in the house last time, speaking with my normal loud and excited self, you know, whenever I'm welcoming you to the show. So, I'm, you know, saving my, my throat this week, I'm saving my breath by... Speaking down a little lower and uh, just making this a nice intimate chat between between us, right? Yeah. So, whether it's early morning for you or during the day or maybe in the evening, yeah, you can kick back and relax and listen to the soothing sounds of Jason and this week's guest, Stephen L. Bruno. <laughs> uh, Stephen and I, uh, not to speak on or for him, but... I had a blast personally speaking with Steven. He was so much fun to talk to and and really enjoyed uh, just every aspect of it. And, you know, and and, and like I mentioned earlier on, that's one of the beauties of this show is there's always something to connect to uh, between me and my guests. There's always a connection, something uh, that we can latch on to. And man, Stephen was no exception. Uh, during this interview, we're going to be talking writing patterns and methods, um, his fascinating beginning to his writing career, how that started, and how his detective character, Damasi Augustine came to be. Um, we learn how he is a storyteller first, and how he came to be a storyteller, which is not your typical, I went to school and learned to do this. Kind of way. It's a really fascinating uh, story. Uh, Plus, you're going to hear a wonderful old Steve Martin joke that I had not thought about in so long. And yet, my friends and I used to uh, do this all the time ourselves. But uh, (laughs) if you catch that joke, make sure you uh, shout it out on social media and tag the show. Let us know that you caught it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but whenever we go over to Stephen's latest book, The SCOTUS Affair, you're also going to be hearing snippets from a few chapters, which is a unique take, something we haven't done before. And it's because there are multiple points of view throughout the book. And uh, I, I thought I agreed with him. I thought this was a really unique idea. So you're going to get a little snippet from a few of the characters. And uh, Steven went through and did it in a way so that you're catching on to what the story is and what's, what's happening. And uh, has a nice little dun 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 moment there towards the end. So I think you're gonna really enjoy this. But that interview with Steven's coming up here in just a few moments, right after a word about our uh, sponsors, Scribner and Audible. Both of them with fantastic offers coming to you right now. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scribner. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software. Built by writers for writers. Hello friends, Jason here, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family, I'm a thriller author, and I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30 day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash sample chapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30 day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals, and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, The Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifel. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry narrated by the incredible Ray Porter and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series narrated by Luke Daniels it's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time A hey, full disclosure by signing up at audibletrial.com slash sample chapter. The show does get a little monetization which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? Head on over now to audibletrial.com sample chapter and start your free 30-day trial today. All right. I'm kind of up against the clock here so I'm not going to talk too much but I do want to make sure to say thank you to the podcast platforms that we are a part of as well the networks starting with pop goes the culture podcast network home to about a dozen different pop culture related shows so much fun so click that link in the show notes for all the shows over there and i also want to thank project entertainment network home to 35 different shows of an immensely wide variety Almost any subject that you might be interested in, you're going to find it over there, such as this one. How do people who make stuff up for a living make stuff up? New York Times bestseller Jonathan Mayberry told us. Oprah's book club favorite Sue Miller told us. You know, you sort of take a character and make some bad things happen. How'd we get them to do that? We colored them just like at a cocktail party, except through your headphones.
1: Join us every Thursday for the Liars Club podcast. Podcast, A slightly unhinged podcast where storytellers interview other storytellers. Available on Project Entertainment Network, iTunes, and everywhere podcasts are heard
0: hello my friends welcome back to another exciting episode of the sample chapter podcast this week we are welcoming Stephen l bruno he is a financial services professional and entrepreneur as a founder of boston 128 companies incorporated he is a frequent public speaker and active philanthropist a graduate of Tufts University, Mr. Bruno has offered two books so far, The MIT Murders and The SCOTUS Affair, and has been awarded the Editor's Choice Award and the Rising Star Award by iUniverse. Welcome to the show, Stephen L. Bruno. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here, and I- I've been really enjoying our chat prior to that and discussing grandkids and uh, writing, and and uh, that's always a lot of fun, but... Uh, I'm excited to have you here and and, uh, let the audience get to know a little bit more about you as well. Well, thanks. Uh, You know, I started writing a little late in life, but um, they say it's never too late
1: to try a new thing. So actually, (laughs) I was uh, stranded at an airport and I ran out of uh, reading material. I had a white pad and I just tried to write a descriptive chapter. This was about three years ago in my mid 60s. And that chapter turned out to be the prologue of the
0: first book. And I had so much fun doing it. I just kind of kept going. That's fantastic. Wow. I've, that's, that's a unique uh, beginning to a career. I've never heard that before. So, so what was, uh, what was that like to, uh, I I mean, what was the impetus that made you think this character, this scene, or, or did you just kind of wing it? honestly, I kind of just
1: winged it for a little bit. Um, You know, we were stuck on the tarmac for three hours, and I do have a vivid imagination. So I said, uh, you know, I'm just going to write a scene in Cambridge, you know, which is next to Boston, kind of a city scene. And as I started writing it, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of classic mysteries and Hitchcock, and I love 60s movies. I even like the 50s movies and, and, uh, you know, that the noir genre and all that kind of a thing. So I I started off with a descriptive scene, and then it took a twist and turn from there. <laughs> and uh, I I kind of got intrigued myself by like, oh,
0: what could I have happen next? And that's how it took on a life of its own. This is something that that's fascinating me. That uh, to so so you were a long time reader, uh, a lover of reading books. Then correct. I grew up,
1: of course. When I grew up, uh, you had three channels, right? They were all black and white, and then you had a couple <laughs> yep. UHF channels, you know. So you had a pretty limited menu uh, as far as TV. And my mother was a teacher and my dad was also a, an avid reader, uh, largely because he was handicapped as a child and, and grew up in a hospital ward and, and educated himself by reading pretty much. So mm. both of my parents uh, encouraged me to read and instilled a loving of, a love of reading in me at a young age. And of course, as a young boy, you read things that excite you. So I read you know, every single Hardy Boys book forwards and backwards, pretty much Tom Swift, you know, and then I ran out of that stuff. And after reading it a couple of times, I went on to Nancy drew and whatever else I could find. And then from there, you, you, you move on to other material, but I loved that kind of stuff. And uh, I love, as I say, movies, you know, my favorite movies are kind of the conspiracy stuff, you know, Clancy, uh, clear and present danger, you know, Patriot Mm -hmm. games, uh, Mm -hmm. Alfred Hitchcock, North by Northwest, you know, that kind of stuff. So, that's how my mind kind of flows, and I, I figured I'd give it a stab when I was in that airplane, and that's, that's kind of how I got started. But yeah, I've been a lifelong reader, and um, I tend to favor the, the thriller genre, uh, Patterson, you know, Baldacci, uh, Brown, and on and on, as many of them as you know. Lee Childs. Have you had a, a background in writing or, or any kind of education in it? No. Um, I think I, you know, I had a pattern from all the reading I've done that, that seemed to flow, I think. And I had a solid education in high school and college. Um, but I had no formal training in writing and I've learned, uh, some of the basics as I've gone along, uh, through my editor, you know, things like, uh, Steve, you're doing a little head hopping here. You got to clean that up or, and and I, (laughs) I I would say, uh, I would say that punctuation is not my strong suit, although I'm getting better at it. So I see myself first, Jason, as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the main thing. If I can come up with a a unique idea and then develop the idea and make it an interesting story, something that I would want to read myself, then I figure the rest comes from there.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm much the same way I grew up. I, I had a little bit of... Uh schooling and writing um, but nothing major I I never went to school specifically for writing it was all the reading and and movies and learning how to tell a story and uh, but uh, my wife would be the first one to tell you that I love my commas um, and whenever (laughs) she reads my work so yes uh, grammar is not my uh, my strong point either (laughs) Well, I had an old uh, friend of
1: mine for 40-something years who's uh, been married that whole time to another friend and now retired and lives down Cape Cod, and she was nice enough to do kind of the first friend read of my first book. And, and she, she posted, you know, all these Post-its all over and all the red marks, and she wrote me a little note back saying, oh, my God, Steve, you love commas. <laughs> <laughs> and she, her English education was much more solid than mine,
0: which is why I asked her to help me out. Pretty funny. I swear, every time I think I've got it figured out, then uh, either Word or Grammarly or my wife or, or somebody else, another teacher saying, what is this comma here for? Why are you, what are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, tell us about this first book then, the, the MIT murders and your, your hero here that you've created I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt this. I I've heard you say it a couple of times. Demasi Augustine. Very, good. Very <laughs> good. Thank you. Uh
1: so I thought it, you know, the city of Cambridge is a is a pretty diverse place. And I thought it would be fun to uh that's where I was born, by the way. So that's kind of why I've lived here all my life in the greater Boston-Cambridge area, and now live in a suburb that is, you know, 15-20 minutes away from Cambridge and Boston and the Charles River. So I thought it would be fun to set a story there. And um, I thought, well, who would be a good candidate in this day and age to be the uh, the homicide, the chief investigator for the homicide division in the detective uh, division of the Cambridge Police Department? And I said, well, let's make it a Haitian-American. So I looked up common Haitian names and saw Damasi, <laughs> And right. I looked up uh, common last names and saw Augustine and put the two together. So that's, that's honestly how it came about. Um, I think I was channeling a little bit of Lou Gossett Jr. If you remember that actor yes. in terms of like physical, how I was picturing him, you know, kind of wiry and, and strong and a mustache and yeah, know, yeah. sort of it tried to make him a little bit of a character. And, um, you know, he'd been around a little bit, but he you know, been in there, been there for 15 years at that point in my when I introduced him as a character. And then this uh, case lands in his lap. Um, and he, resolves the case eventually in the MIT murders.
0: Fantastic. So was that character there from the beginning, or is that something that you, you wanted to develop as it went on? So I, I kind of like the character
1: as that book unfolded. My initial thought was not to have a series with him as the central character, but that is what happened. So he's the only common character through the MIT murders and then the SCOTUS affair and the subsequent books that I've written uh, with him as the, the main protagonist. Um, but um, I have evolved him as a character. So in the first book, The MIT Murders, he is, um, he is the chief homicide detective. In the second book, he's moved on to the private sector. And in the subsequent books, his company that he moved on and founded with a, a, another guy that he met that was a psychologist from the FBI, uh, they founded this company together and I, vol- I, evolved them, I evolved them into government contractors. And the reason I did that is to just give me a broader scope. I mean, you can only have so many uh, detective stories set in Cambridge. But what I did through the books is I've elevated him to a world stage where, uh, you know, in some of the subsequent books, the action takes place in South America, Russia, Trinidad, other places, uh, Costa Rica right now, one of the ones I'm writing. So. I tried to uh, broaden him out as a character and develop him as the books went on.
0: Okay. Now, and you were, uh, we were discussing before the show, you were telling me a little about your writing process, uh, that you are an early riser, that uh, that's when you like to write most. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So
1: I write for my own entertainment. I mean, that's really the motivation. And um, I am a small business owner, and I've owned that business and been in business for 45 years uh, at this point. And, um, you know, it can be stressful at times. It's a financial services business, and um, we're very fortunate. It's a very healthy, mature business. I'm thankful for it, and I work hard at it. However, uh, it's a nice escape And for me, the morning time is my alone time. I mean, once the day starts, uh, it's hard. You can't shut off the phones, generally speaking. And there's a lot of activity and your head's on a swivel and so forth. So I found that I like this process so much when I started that time in the plane that when I got home, I I got up and I said, I want to see what happens next. And I am an early riser. So I'd get up at 5.30 or 6 and I'd write for an hour or two. And that's just how it's now become a habit. Um, You know, I find that my mind is... The most clear at that time of day. And I find it very relaxing and stimulating and enjoyable. So that's how it developed.
0: I agree completely. I've discovered the same about myself that uh, I, I can't edit in the morning. Um, but I also can't really write in the evenings either. But I've discovered if I when I get up in the morning, and I get that coffee going, I sit down with the first cup, then I can open up my work and, and get going. And it's coming out of me pretty easily. And I'll, I'll get, e- even if I'm only getting 500 words, I'm happy, but usually I can get a good thousand or more every morning uh, in there. And then in the evenings I come home and uh, that's when I'll pull it up and start editing on it again. Cause you know, the, the day has worn on me and I'm tired and I'm looking at my work going, what the heck was this? Get this out of here. Like cut this line. That's stupid. So I can be rougher on myself in the evenings. <clears throat>
1: That's interesting, because I feel the exact same way. And I actually write longhand. So I have white pads of paper and I fill them up. I might I might write 10 pages longhand on a white pad in the morning. Uh, if I'm really going crazy, I might write 15. And my brain doesn't work. I cannot write at night. Uh, but what I can do at night, and I don't do it every night because there's I have to have a life as well. Wow. But, you know, I get ahead on the writing and then I type it up at night on word and um I, I look forward to printing out the type version and then i'll proof it several times you know i'll get a glass of sherry and that's how i'll relax in the evening so i'm not being creative i'm just in the evening i'm just kind of doing rote work or might have the tv on in the background or my wife might be doing something nearby or whatever so it's, i don't have to be focused on the creative process it's just kind of uh because i'm going to proof it several times anyway so the first time through is just initial reaction get it in typewritten form mm-hmm. and uh
0: that type of thing. Wow, that's fascinating. And from what I've seen on here, I know you've been working on this for a couple of years, but like you had the the first one came out, you know, the MIT Martyrs' first one came out in November of 19. SCOTUS Affair uh, that we're going to hear from today came out in May of 20. And we were talking before that you've already got a few others uh, about ready to go. You're pretty quick with this, it sounds like. I do. I mean, I would say it's
1: probably about six months between books, and you may add some time to that for the editorial process, of course. Um, but um, <clears throat> yeah, since I've kept going and I do it six or seven mornings a week, it does lead to a, a pretty constant flow. Sometimes I'll interrupt that to brainstorm and chart out future chapters or ideas or whatever in the morning. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's writing time. So uh, yeah, um, book three is called... Uh, water war not to be confused with water world and kevin costner (laughs) and uh water wars um there's actually i was surprised to find out that new england there's a a pipeline that runs between trinidad and the port of everett in, in boston uh where for many years all of our liquid lng was piped from a refinery in trinidad to everett and that's what fueled much of the greater boston area And that pipeline was closed down because of various other economic factors. I think Venezuela getting into competition, there was other reasons too, but anyway, it was all abandoned. And um, I decided to develop a plot where uh, terrorists take the uh, one of our, they try to take two reservoirs, we have two major reservoirs in Massachusetts. They take them offline with drones by putting some kind of microbe in the water to foul the water. And then they are piping, they, they were working behind the scenes with a, a uh, water strike force that is there to help provide water, because water is a scarcity in, in the world and it's becoming more and more so. So there's, there's a, there's a uh, desalination plant that is converted at the old refinery and they start piping water to, uh, to well, their goal is to start piping water back to Boston and to apply the Boston water supply. But there's an ulterior motive uh, in that whole thing that's being funded by a Russian oligarch. So it's a terrorist plot, basically. And uh, Damasi Augustine, of course, eventually sniffs it out and saves the day. So that, that's book three. Uh, book four is Lucky Winner. That's about a, a, a guy that's an Iraq war veteran, and he wins $500 million in the lottery. And he's about 12 years into collecting, and he's spending every dime of it. So he's got eight years left. And all of a sudden, he recognizes that, uh, he, he slowly recognizes it like a frog in a pot of water that's boiling that some of his contingent beneficiaries are being bumped off. And of course that wouldn't mean anything unless he was bumped off. So uh, the question is what's happening? Uh, are they actually being killed or is it are they accidental deaths as they appear and who's doing it and why and so forth. And uh, and so Demacia Augustin gets uh, called into that case and again eventually solves the day. Oversimplifying all of these, of course, but uh, and then the the fifth one is called Mindbender, and that is the sequel to the MIT Murders. So,
0: ah.
1: yeah, so that's the only you know, the same same Demasi Augustine, but I actually bring back uh, this Dr. Hans Berger, who's kind of almost like a Hannibal Lecter type character, not exactly the same, obviously, and in many ways different, but that concept. He's uh, He's a guy that he's an MIT professor whose life went off the rails uh, because he was falsifying some research and cooking the books and stuff like that and had some other things going on. So um, he, he evolves into a serial killer while he's at MI, an MIT professor. That's the first book. And uh, now he, he gets, in the first book he ends up going to federal prison, but now here we are seven years later in the sequel and he actually gets out of prison and he's uh, on a little revenge tour
0: uh, oh. for Fantastic. And what a great name, too. Hans Burger. I mean, ever since <laughs> Die Hard, Hans is a great villain name. <laughs> <That's> right. Wonderful. <laughs> and, I, I, and, you know, I was, I, oh, sorry. Go I ahead. I, like uh, Steve
1: Martin, you know, and uh Burger. Hans
0: Burger. <laughs> <laughs> <Hans Berger. laughs> oh, my gosh. I haven't thought of that. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh! Uh, well, so, and you kind of answered my my follow up question. I was going to have if if the books were standalone or if they were sequential, where you've got to read one to get to the other. It sounds like they're more or less uh, standalone mysteries. Each one, I think each one is standalone, but I think the reader would have a little more insight if
1: they did read them in sequence. But I think what may happen, uh, you know, the reason why we're stacked up a little bit is because as you know, I self-published the first two books and I did get a little bit of traction. And so a friend of a friend read uh, the MIT murders and had a relationship with a, a Hollywood agency and referred me to them. And I, I they are representing me now with book three, four or five. So, they're, um, so we, they didn't want me to self-publish them. So they've been pulled back. And that's why they're stacking up a little bit. One way or another, they'll get published eventually, even if I self-publish them as you and I discussed, Mm-hmm. you know, at some point then I'm doing it for my own fun anyway. So my grandkids will have eight or 12 Demasi Augustine mysteries on the mantle someday. Um, cause so having anything else happen is obviously a long shot. And again, uh, my main motivation was just uh, my own entertainment, but, um, so we're a little backed up right now and we'll just have to see how that all plays out. Oh, but what a
0: great scenario. I mean, if it does work out, you know, then, then you get yourself, a you, know, you get to see Damasi in, in the movies. Um, and, you know, the I guess the silver line to that would be you're pushing on and you're writing more stories, so you're ready to go in case it falls through. And on the other side of that is that you could do the, uh, they call it the quick release. So you could put one out every 30 to 60 days and build up quite the uh, following with that too.
1: Yeah. Again, I'll just have to see what kind of reaction we get. Um And you asked the question about whether they would have to be read in sequence so i have a feeling that the the people who are advising me uh, at the agency they like the mit murders quite a bit and they're anxious to go with the sequel so they may skip over some in terms of what they're trying to achieve i'm not sure um so again we'll just have to see who likes what? You know, it takes someone to like your work to move forward in that regard. So
0: it worked for Ian Fleming, so I'm sure it can work for you. They can they can jump around the books and and put out Demasi in any order they want, right? That's right. It's <laughs> so, funny,
1: so funny you say that, Jason, because I'm I'm actually at night falling asleep right now reading Thunderball because I wanted to go back and read an original. Oh Ian my Fleming, gosh! You know, to see his obviously the language is a little different than you would write now, and the, the, there's some significant uh differences but i i i like reading the old authors and he was a, obviously a master
0: yeah i've i've got three of them in my to be read file uh, but i try to read something classic at least every every other month if i can a few a year and i just finished hound of the baskervilles oh nice uh, my first ever sherlock so that was yeah. a lot of fun I love
1: those old Basil Rathbone, black and white Sherlock Holmes movies. I can remember being (laughs) a kid, having a bellyache or something and getting up with my mom at two in the morning. And, you know, of course, she's going to stay with you and putting on and that'd be be the only thing on an old Sherlock Holmes movie. So she's been gone for many years.
0: But because of that, I have an affection for them. Oh, fantastic. So we've discussed, it sounds like I think we've discussed, uh, uh, obviously, MIT and then the sequel of that that's coming up here sometime in the near future plus some of the other books but uh, what we want to hear from today is the scotus affair and what this is about what can you what can you tell us about this one
1: well the scotus affair you know you asked earlier if i had any formal training uh in writing and i said no which is true and when i sent the scotus affair to the editor they said you know this is um this is a split narrative and uh you know, I'm not sure that's the way to do it. You're not really following the formula. And I said, well, I like it this way, so I'm going to keep it this way. So <laughs> it got edited, obviously, and improved, and the editor did a great job. But it is a, it is a split narrative. So it's a love story that uh, is, I think, compelling. It's an interracial love story that goes back over four decades. So you meet uh, the opening in the opening chapter, which I may read to you later, part of it. Uh, You meet a 70-year-old Ben Johnson, who is a very successful Black entrepreneur, and um, he he has um, had a relationship for 40 or 50 years, 40 years, with um, a woman from Louisiana who is connected to the political world, kind of a political matriarch down that area. And so it starts off in present day, flashes back to how they met. That sets up coming back to present day, where she is in a coma. She's been attacked in a home invasion back in Louisiana at her home. No one knows why. And from there, we introduce uh, a senator, Richard Monroe, uh, and he is uh, not, he's hes a corrupt senator. He's kind of got a shadow organization going. He's more about his own personal power and, uh, his own benefit and economic benefit, and and so forth. And he's got his own plans, and that's where the conspiracy side of the narrative comes in. And he's got his tentacles uh, through different aspects of government and and uh, the FBI and so forth. So um, it all ties back to why was why was this woman why was she attacked why is she in a coma? That's that's central to the mystery and. Uh, Ben Johnson happens to be friends with Damasi Augustine. And because he's had this relationship with, the, his, with this woman for four decades, but she's married with grown children. She's a, she's a political figure down in uh, the wife of a political figure down in uh, Louisiana. Um, he can't go down himself. So he sends Demasi down to find out what happened. And then it kind of threads together into the conspiracy narrative of the book. Uh, Which I won't give away, and then ultimately Damasi resolves the conspiracy, and the uh, the love story is also
0: resolved. The love story is also resolved at the very end. Oh my goodness! Fantastic! This sounds incredible. I cannot wait to hear about this, and uh, you know I'm going to have to, uh, I think, log in here and uh, pick up a few of these books and start going into into uh, the. <clears throat> Demasi books myself. And especially now that you've mentioned Lou Gossett, Jr., who I absolutely adore, uh, that's going to really paint it for me and uh, see this character come to life. I and, wish
1: he was 20 years younger. I'd, I'd, I'd have them really go after him and say, you're the guy that you should run with this whole series. It'd be awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, where can uh, where can people find out more about you and, and maybe find out when these books are available? Well, the books uh,
1: are available on Amazon. The first two that have been published. So you can certainly, uh, you can Google the name or search the name of uh, either book or my name, Stephen L. Bruno. You can also go to um, uh, my website, brunobooks.com. B-R-U-N-E-A-U is the Bruno spelling, brunobooks.com. And um anybody that wants to get added to my email list, um, you know, you can email me directly if you like, it's first initial last name, S Bruno at B O S 128com And I'm, I've built an email list and we, we, so we announce on Facebook, we announce, uh, through the email list and we'll put it up on the website as the new ones come out.
0: Fantastic. All right. And I will make sure to have links for all this in the show notes so that everybody can click there when you're done listening and, uh, head on over and find and follow Stephen Bruneau and learn about the, uh, the continuing adventures of, uh, detective Demasi Augustine. So, thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, really a trip down memory lane for me on so many, I've got so many other things I'm like making notes to talk to you about after the show. So <laughs> things that just keep coming up. But, uh, meanwhile, I should probably hand the floor over to you and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll hear a little bit from uh, the SCOTUS affair. Again, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and it's been very enjoyable.
0: Likewise, my friend, likewise. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as we alluded to, it is time to hand the floor to my guest, Stephen L. Bruno with the SCOTUS affair.
1: Well, Jason, thank you again. And, uh, I think what I'd like to do just to give folks a, a little feel for the book is to read, uh, Uh, three different sections of the book, just two or three pages on each section. Because it is a split narrative, I think that will give people a feel for how the plot and the issues might develop and who some of the characters are. In the time we have, um, that's what I'd like to do. So I'm gonna start off with chapter one, Boston, Massachusetts, present day. Ben Johnson stood alone in the middle of the Boston Common with his arms outstretched and his gaze directed toward the sky. It was a bright, warm July morning, and he could feel the heat of the sun on his upturned face. A solitary tear meandered down his cheek, cutting a random path before dripping onto the front of his shirt. But no one would notice. The park below was full of people. He watched them in the distance from atop a grassy knoll, away from the crowded paths. No one paid him any mind, and anyone who happened to pass by was oblivious to his presence. Ben Johnson was a good man, one who made an effort to treat others fairly. He did not believe life was a 0 sum game. He did not believe that for his business to prosper, others had to suffer. To the contrary, his business formula was to enhance the lives of others, to build transformative value, to create or improve. He believed that relationships were the key to success, and he surrounded himself with people who had the same energies. On the foundation of that philosophy, He had become one of the wealthiest black entrepreneurs in the country. In contrast, Ben also found that when wealth or power was inherited, the deeper into the generational tree that inheritance occurred, the greater the propensity for a sense of entitlement. That condition was not ubiquitous, but often those who were handed great value didn't understand or appreciate what it taken to build that value. Worse, when push came to shove, they might be willing to do anything to hold on to it. When one encountered the issue of corruption, a sense of entitlement was often the basis for it. Corruption begot corruption, and thus was the yin and the yang of the business world. None of that mattered to Ben Johnson in the current moment. He thought he felt his phone vibrate and put his hand near his pocket. It was still, he let out a ragged breath The phone call he'd received earlier had shaken him to his core. The two of them had discussed exactly that type of situation in the past, but those conversations always had been in the abstract, about a hypothetical event in the distant future, not about something real. Now, the unthinkable had happened. His world had turned upside down, and he was helpless to change it. The love of his life was dying lying in a coma 1,500 miles away, and there wasn't a damn thing he could do about it. So that's the open of the book. We meet Ben Johnson, and we learn a little bit about Acadia LaFleur, although she hasn't been named yet. I'd now like to read the beginning of Chapter 5, which introduces another character, Senator Richard Monroe. Chapter 5, Washington, D.C., present day. Senator Richard Monroe rolled over and laid his head back on the pillow. The young woman next to him reached for her pocketbook on the nightstand and fished out a pack of cigarettes. She propped a pillow up against the headboard and lit up a smoke. I wish you wouldn't do that, the Senator said resignedly. It smells to high heaven. You say that every time, Dickie, she replied. You're going to take a shower anyway, so what difference does it make? It's not attractive, it turns me off. The woman giggled. Gee, you didn't seem to feel that way five minutes ago. The Senator waved his hand and swung his feet over the edge of the bed. I can't win with you. I've got to hit the head. He smiled to show he wasn't really angry but was just trying to make a point. The woman paid him no mind and continued to smoke while the Senator went to the bathroom and closed the door. It was not the woman's first time in the Senator's Watergate apartment and she doubted it would be her last. She knew how to please him and a little cigarette smoke wasn't going to change that. She had known the Senator for more than a year and when in town, he was pretty much a regular customer. She reached for her cell phone and checked the time, one hour to go. He'll probably try to rally for one more last round. She scrolled through her calendar to double check the rest of her appointments for the day. Behind the bathroom door, she heard the toilet flush. She went to the Keurig machine across the room and stabbed her cigarette out in a coffee cup. Daisy May was her professional name and she tried to look the part, not in terms of cut off jeans and a halter top, but more along the lines of the way she wore her wild blonde hair up and the effect of her speech coming across like that of an innocent country girl. The customers loved that. It wasn't that much of a stretch. At heart, Daisy May was a country girl endowed with certain natural talents, little education, and no small degree of ambition to climb out of poverty She decided at a young age to use what God had given her. Men always had found her sexy and attractive. As she developed into a teenager, she discovered she had something of value, something men wanted. One thing had led to another. And now at age 30, she was living the good life as an elite professional escort in Washington, DC. The service she worked for was top of the line and discreet. All her appointments were scheduled for her Sometimes a single job could cover a few days, but more often the average assignment was two or three hours. All the clients were powerful men and were well-screened, and most were regulars. She checked herself in the mirror when suddenly the senator's phone pinged. She glanced at the bathroom door. Curiosity got the better of her. Daisy May picked up the senator's phone. It must be something being important like he is, she thought. I wonder what it would be like. He probably gets calls and texts from generals, other senators, maybe even the president. She read the text. Tompkins is dead. SCOTUS operational. Meet ASAP, usual, final target authorization. Someone is dead, Daisy May thought. A relative of the Senator or something? Just as she was putting the Senator's phone back on the nightstand, the bathroom door opened. The Senator saw her put down the phone. Anything interesting, he said. Daisy Mae felt her face flush slightly. She flashed her sexiest smile. No, Dickie, I was just coming back to bed when it pinged. It was just a natural reaction. It pinged and I picked it up. I'm sorry. Senator Monroe didn't seem angry. He picked up his phone and read the text. He immediately frowned. What is it, Dickie? Daisy Mae said softly. Did someone die or something? Is it someone you know? The senator stared at her but remained silent. Daisy May smiled back innocently, not sure how to react. Monroe retrieved his boxer shorts and trousers from a nearby chair and started to get dressed. Apparently, there would be no shower that day. Daisy, be a love and see if you can find some news on the TV. Daisy May pulled on her panties and blouse, clicked through a few channels and found CNN. A banner scrolled across the bottom of the screen proclaiming, breaking news, Supreme Court Justice Charles Tompkins dead at 86. Pictures of Justice Tompkins in various scenes flashed on the screen. As a newscaster intoned, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Charles Tompkins is dead of natural causes at age 86. He passed away unexpectedly earlier this morning at his home in Bethesda, Maryland. Tompkins served on the court for parts of four decades and was a reliable vote for conservatives. Tompkins was first appointed to the court in the senator reached over, took the control, and shut off the TV. They both continued to dress in silence. It was obvious the lovemaking was through for the day. Senator Monroe seemed in a great hurry. Daisy May checked her makeup and her hair one more time. Monroe walked over, kissed the back of her head, and handed her 10 crisp hundred dollar bills. I'm sorry, Daisy, he said. I've got to go. You were wonderful as usual. I'll see you again soon. Daisy turned and kissed him on the cheek. Thank you, Dickie. That was your friend, wasn't it? That guy on TV was one of, in your text, right? Monroe didn't deny the obvious. He's not actually my friend, just someone I know, someone important. All your friends are important, Dickie. That's one of the reasons I like you so much. That and the presents you give me. With that, Daisy May swung her pocketbook strap over her shoulder and left. So there's an introduction to the primary antagonist in the story. And the last excerpt I'd like to read introduces our protagonist, which is Damasi Augustin. Damasi is a former chief homicide detective in the city of Cambridge when we first met him in the first book, "The MIT Murders." Now he's uh, evolved into the private sector, where he has a private contracting firm uh, doing security work, investigative work and that type of thing. So in this chapter, Damasi Augustine has gone down to Louisiana at the behest of Ben Johnson to investigate why Ben's lifetime love, Acadia Lafleur is in a coma, and how she got there, what happened to her. So Damasi is down there and now he's working uh, with the sheriff in the local community in Louisiana. Damasi realized there was no possible way the second attack could be a coincidence. There had to be a connection. Damasi turned to the sheriff how many Acadia Lafleurs are out there? Sheriff Roy stroked a few keys and leaned back in his chair so Damasi could see the screen. There's a lot more of them than I would have thought, the sheriff exclaimed. Lafleur is a pretty common Cajun name and there are also French Canadians throughout the United States with the surname Lafleur. It says here Acadia is actually a region in Canada around what we now think of as Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. It was originally populated by Native Americans and French settlers. There was some intermingling of those two groups. Eventually, after a bunch of wars, the English took over, and a lot of what we now call Cajuns migrated to the United States, many of them winding up right here in Louisiana. It says Acadia is one of the most common female Cajun names, after the region in Canada where they all came from. According to this, guess how many Acadia Lafleurs there are in the US? No idea, Demasi said, straining to read what was on the screen as the sheriff scrolled rapidly back and forth. 1,400 or so in the whole country and over 400 right here in Louisiana. It's the Cajun equivalent of the name Jane Smith or Sue Jones for crying out loud. There's tons of them. When was the last time you had a victim of any sort by that name, Demasi asked. Sheriff turned to face him. Can't recall that we ever have, he said. So what do you think the odds are that we have two victims with the same MO and the same name within two weeks? Not very high, I'd say. What the hell do you think is going on the sheriff asked I don't know Demasi replied but it seems obvious that we're probably looking at the same perp. it has to be the same guy it's too much of a coincidence to be anything else you think we should put some kind of warning out to people named Acadia Lafleur maybe we have some kind of crazed serial killer working his way through a telephone directory or a census listing that's possible I suppose Demasi said but I don't think that's it nonetheless you probably should put out a communication to all the sheriff's departments and Louisiana State Police, alerting them and advising them to contact any Acadia Lafleur within their jurisdiction. I can do that, the sheriff said. What are you going to do? How would you feel about deputizing me and allowing me to go down to Beauregard Parish to check things out? The sheriff just stared at him. All due respect, sheriff, your men are not trained for this type of investigation. I am. It's outside your jurisdiction anyway. Let me be your liaison between the two cases. If I can help us make progress, it will only make you look better. I'll report straight back to you on anything I discover down there. Damasi was intentionally specific in mentioning down there. He still didn't want to share with the sheriff the discovery of the partial fingernail he had shipped off for DNA analysis. The sheriff thought about Damasi's offer for a moment, then he shrugged and accepted. All right, consider yourself deputized but I want to know what the hell is going on down there and how it relates to what we have going on back up here. All hell is going to break loose when the word of this gets out. The mayor's going to be all over my ass. Everyone's going to want answers and I haven't got any. Massey stood, let them know I'm coming. Try to smooth the way for them to be cooperative. I'll see what I can do. So there's one other segment that we could read. And this is uh, down in DeRitter, Louisiana. And it will give you a feel for uh, the plot developing a little bit. Chapter 18, DeRitter, Louisiana. DeMasi figured he'd stay one last night in DeRitter and then head back to Alexandria in the morning. For the time being, he'd done as much as he could on that end of the case. In the space of a few days, they had been able to establish definitively that the same person was responsible for the attacks on both Acadia Lafleur's. The DNA match confirmed what circumstantial evidence and the MO had indicated all along. Whoever the perpetrator was, they were closing in on him and Damasi knew it was only a matter of time before his identity came to light. He made a mental note to call Ben Johnson later in the day to bring him up to speed. He still didn't have a clear motive in either attack but both cases seemed to have a Washington connection. Circumstantial evidence supported the theory that young Katie had fled Washington in a hurry to return to Louisiana. Hopefully Larson would come up with some name of the centers who might fit the nickname Dicky, and they could shift the focus of their investigation to D.C. The picture was still foggy, but Damasi felt if they found the motive behind the Sugartown Katie Lafleur murder, it might reveal the reason behind the attack on the Elder Acadia as well. Damasi stretched and rolled over, determined to doze for another twenty minutes to catch up on some of the sleep he'd missed over the past week. Just as he was about to drift off, his phone started buzzing. He could see from the caller ID that it was Sheriff Roy from Alexandria. Good morning, Demasi said, answering the call. Ain't nothing good about it, Roy shouted back through the phone. All hell's broke loose up here. You need to get your ass back up here pronto. I don't know what in the bejesus is going on. What happened? What happened, Roy repeated. I got dead bodies turning up all over the damn hospital last night. That's what happened. Demasi was instantly awake. Dead bodies? Who? How? Is Miss Acadia all right? Yeah, she's still the same, but the patient in the room next to her ain't so good. He's dead. And they found a dead nurse in the guy's bathroom. In the room next to Acadia Lafleur, Demasi said in disbelief. Sheriff Roy sounded as if he were hyperventilating. Did I stutter? Yeah, can you believe that shit? I've never even heard of a case like this. And that ain't all. The volunteer lady at the information desk in the lobby is dead too. Lying right there on the floor with a broken neck. Holy shit. That was all Damasi could manage to say as he processed the information for a moment. Are there any witnesses or footage? The state police are here now. They're pulling security footage as we speak. And we got three eyewitnesses. Good, Damasi said, regaining his composure. What did they see? It's the damnedest thing. The dead nurse made an emergency call from her walkie talkie for a code blue. She was in the room next to Acadia LaFleur. Code blue means a patient needs to be resuscitated. There's a skeleton crew working night shift at the hospital but a doctor and a nurse came running in response to the call. Just before they got to the room, a guy burst out of the door wearing a towel wrapped around his head and sprinted to the stairwell. When they entered the room, they found the patient dead. And then a couple of minutes later, they found the nurse who made the call, dead in the laboratory. There was also a night janitor buffing the floor, but none of them got a good look at the guy. This is most perplexing, Demasi said. Why would all this occur in the room next to Acadia LaFleur, yet she is untouched? He held the phone under his neck as he pulled on his trousers. He didn't believe in coincidences. Clearly the latest murders were related to Acadia, but how? It makes no sense to me, Sheriff Roy replied. All right, Demasi said, I was done here for the time being anyway, I'm on my way. What's going on right now? The place is crawling with state police and forensics guys. My guys have set up a perimeter. Okay, Demasi said, I'm coming straight to the hospital. Meet me there, who's in charge? Me and the state police captain, but he's calling the shots. Sheriff, Demasi said, this is very important. We must look for anything that would provide a possible DNA sample of the killer. Please ask them to slow down and coordinate with us on that. It could be on a doorknob, a cup, the body of a victim, or anything. This is crucial. We must understand if this attacker is the same person who attacked the two Acadia LaFleurs. Attacked the two Acadia LaFleurs? Are you sure about that? Yes, I didn't tell you because I just found out myself. We have conclusive DNA evidence that the same person attacked both Acadias. Is that right? I didn't know we had DNA evidence on the attack up here. Where'd that come from? It's a long story. I'll explain it to you later, but trust me, we must find out if this is the same person coming back once again, if the other dead people in the hospital are tied in somehow. It seems impossible after all this that someone could randomly kill the patient next to Acadia and not have it connected in some way. But how, Sheriff Roy exclaimed. It don't make no sense. He tries to kill Acadia once, and then he don't touch her when he kills the guy next door and two members of the hospital staff? Sheriff, have someone in your office find out as much as they can about the three new victims, what they did for work, hobbies, family, anything that might tie them to each other or to Acadia. My guess is you won't find anything. Maybe they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe some of these deaths are just meant to cover up the true target, meant to confuse us. Well, they're doing a damn good job.
0: And that was Stephen L. Bruno reading a few snippets from his latest book, The SCOTUS Affair. The book is available right now. It's got rave reviews on Amazon. And uh, I've already picked up The MIT Murders Myself, his first book in the series. As you heard, you also got some inside information on the next three books in the series. So make sure you click the link in the show notes so you can find and follow Stephen and uh, hear when these other books are coming out. Don't forget to also click those links for our sponsors and podcast friends alike and click that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when we're back with an all-new author, a new book, and a brand new sample chapter. Take care, everyone. We'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.